You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com What you don't know can hurt you sometimes, my friends, despite what the uh, old saying would have us believe. And there's a lot out there that we don't know about. Well, welcome to the broadcast. This is Corbett Report Radio on Republic Broadcasting. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. I'm coming to you every single night here on Republic Broadcasting Live at 9 p.m. Central. So you can listen live on the RepublicBroadcasting.org streams. And of course, you can always go to CorbettReport.com for the radio archives and the documentation, the show notes, all of that goodness is there at CorbettReport.com. Tonight we are going to be talking about the things that we don't know, we don't know a lot about, because it is being deliberately hidden from us. And there's a lot... A lot of problems with that on a lot of different levels, as you can well imagine. So let's start examining the subject that we broached last week here on the broadcast, and which has garnered quite a bit of attention, and that is the subject of weather modification, geoengineering, chemtrailing, and the manipulation of our environment for financial gain, as our guest Peter Kirby was highlighting last week, and for other reasons as well, as we're going to get into here on the program tonight. So this is Friday night here on Corbett Report Radio. That means we have a Friday night highlight routine where we dip into the archives of CorbettReport.com for some of the previous interviews and videos and other goodies that you might have missed the first time around. And tonight we're going to pull together a few different interviews that I've done on the subject of weather manipulation, geoengineering, chemtrailing, etc., Uh, Starting off with a very interesting conversation I had the honor to conduct uh, almost two years ago now with a couple of people who are well-versed in these matters, G. Edward Griffin and Michael Murphy. And Michael Murphy, of course, is the filmmaker behind What in the World Are They Spraying and Why in the World Are They Spraying, both of which I will exhort you to go and check out online. Also, we're going to be listening to a conversation I conducted with Rosalind Peterson that was part of my podcast episode on geoengineering and you. And if you haven't checked that podcast episode out in the archives, I suggest you do so because it has a lot of information on this topic. And then we're going to watch the video. If you're watching the video at home at corporatereport.com slash video or on YouTube or wherever else you find me in video form, you can watch the video or on on the radio, you can listen along as we listen to my recent conversation with Michelle Chosodowski of globalresearch.ca, again, on the subject of weather manipulation and weather warfare, an increasingly important topic in these increasingly dark times. And surprisingly enough, it's a topic that is actually daring to be broached, even in mainstream media circles. I've cited this article a couple of times now, but I still think it's interesting that Yahoo would even post an article about this, let alone that they would uh, actually broach the the, the subject in a headline. But, uh, But here it is. Could Iran's enemies really be destroying its rain clouds? And this comes from Yahoo News, and it says, Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has reportedly accused his country's enemies of creating a drought in Iran by somehow destroying or co-opting its share of rain clouds. 
And uh, it goes on from there. I think you get the tone of the piece from that opening paragraph. Oh, the crazy Ahmadinejad says they're somehow manipulating the weather. And uh, they're playing the old, oh, I've never heard of that routine, which we know is a bunch of bunkum. But it's interesting nonetheless that this is actually at the very least getting some press, getting some headlines, getting some people to actually raise the question, wow, do you think they could be doing something like that? I mean, surely they will impose sanctions on a country that in the case of Iraq, for example, will kill half a million children. But, oh, they would never think to use technology to manipulate the weather. And, and certainly they wouldn't have any technology for that, would they? Well, I think it's safe to say that the technology that the Department of Defense has in its arsenal is so far beyond what you and I could imagine that uh, that it would be ridiculous to sit here and believe that this is not already going on to some extent. So tonight we're going to start breaking that down, unpacking some of this, taking a look at some of the interviews I've done in the past on this very subject. So once again, I hope you will play along at home. And uh, if you want, you can, of course, go to CorbettReport.com for the show notes for tonight's episode. That's number 237 for those of you keeping track at home. And you can find all of the show notes where I will direct you to the originals of these interviews and the podcast episode in question, etc., etc. Lots and lots of information to go through tonight, so I'm looking forward to it. Sit right back. We'll be back right after these messages. One day in Manhattan Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It's the 1st of October, 2012, and today we're joined on the line once again by our old friend, Professor Michelle Chosodowski of GlobalResearch.ca, all the way on the line from my home and native land of Canada. Professor Chosodowski, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us again. Delighted to be on the program. All right. Well, tonight I wanted to start talking about a uh, subject that is... Uh, is something that not a lot of people think of. It's not in the forefront of a lot of people's minds when we're talking about some of these events like uh, warfare and the possibility of warfare in various parts of the globe. Something that not a lot of people have on their plate when it comes to that topic is the possibility of weather warfare and modification of the environment itself, climate, as a tool of warfare. And this is uh, despite the fact that there's in fact a volume, a, a voluminous amount of detail that has been accrued over the years documenting the fact that weather warfare and climatic uh, modification is very much a reality. So let's start talking about that. I know you've written about that extensively for globalresearch.ca. Perhaps we can talk about some of the documentation and some of the companies that are behind this climate uh, modification agenda. Well, first of all, I should mention that uh, weather warfare is not something which is recent. It was used during the Vietnam War. Cloud seeding techniques, which were intended to block uh, enemy supply lines. But uh, in the course of the 1990s, it has become increasingly sophisticated. And I'm, I'm referring to the development, what is called the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program, HARP, uh, which is based in Gakona, Alaska, uh, which uh, is, uh, is, a, is a system of, of high frequency uh, antennas uh, directed to the, uh, to the outer atmosphere and which then can be used to trigger uh, climatic instability uh, in different parts of the world as well as disrupt communication systems. Uh, we talk about NMOD, Environmental Modification Techniques for Military Use. Now, these uh, techniques of uh, climatic modification are 
um, if we can trust military documents and statements of the U.S. Air Force, they are fully operational. But there's absolutely no evidence, there are suspicions, of course, uh, there's no evidence that these techniques has, have actually been applied. It's very difficult to, to actually test whether, you know, the, the activity of HARP has led to particular climatic uh, occurrences. But um, what is important to, to point out in the current context is that uh, the United States... Sorry, the telephone. I'll, I'll say. I'll start again. I think what is important to point out is that the United States, as well as Russia, have these capabilities, but particularly the United States uh, in relation to HARP, and uh, they have acknowledged that they intend to use these technologies of weather modification, which can trigger floods, hurricanes, droughts, earthquakes, um, against enemies, namely, in the present context, Syria, Iran, North Korea, China, Russia, okay? Um, and uh, and they, uh, they um, explicitly state that these um, weather modification techniques have both offensive as well as defensive applications and can be used for deterrence purposes. Um, in other words, we are in presence of something which is very diabolical. Uh, I consider this to be the ultimate weapon of mass destruction. Why? Because it can destroy the agricultural system. It can destabilize uh, the, the national ecology, the environment. Uh, it can disrupt communications um, networks. It can destabilize an entire national economy. And uh, they, and uh, in the present context of asymmetrical warfare on, and the use of non-conventional uh, weapon systems, uh, which has been proposed, in fact, by the by the U.S. Uh, administration, I would suspect that weather warfare is part of the agenda. Uh, nobody talks about it. Unfortunately, scientists are absolutely mute on the subject. Uh, climate, uh, the meteorologists, uh, I'll say that again, uh, scientists are mute on the subject. Uh, it is not part of the debate on climate change, although it is acknowledged that, uh, that these techniques do disrupt climate. Um, and um, ultimately, the scientific debate on Owning the weather, owning the weather for military use. I'm using the terms of the of the U.S. Air Force. Those are not those are not my terms. The U.S. Air Force says we must own the weather. We must own the weather so that we can use the weather in the for military purposes against enemies um, of of the United States and the Western world. So that is the background. 
Well, let's talk a little bit more about some of the the documents that back this up and some of the technologies that are itself doing this. And in some of your writings, you go as far back as a U.S. mathematician, John von Neumann, who was writing about this as much as 70 years ago. So this is by no means a new concept and has been fleshed out in numerous documents, as you've been detailing. Um, why why do you think it has been so much kept under wraps and, and how are they able to, to maintain that level of secrecy over something that's been so out in the open for so long? Well, I think there are two elements behind this. First of all, it's the nature of, of the weapon system itself. It, it is something which is covert in its application so that it, when the harp antennas go into full swing and trigger a particular geopolitical area of the world, okay, or a particular country, nobody knows about it. It's reported as a flood, a drought. Nobody knows about it. And um, it is very difficult for uh, even for scientists to establish a link between the activity of the harp system of antennas on the one hand and a climatic occurrence at the other end of the world. There have been suspicions and there have been some very unusual patterns which have emerged. Uh, so it's the con- it's the convert um, nature of this of this of these uh, of this weapon system, uh, and one one assumes it is heavily integrated into covert operations and so on. It's not strictly a U.S. Air Force uh, undertaking, and um, there's always the possibility of denial. Said, "Oh uh, yes, we've been attacked by ARP. Now, how how do you prove it?" Um, and but on the other hand, there have been very few scientists which have had the courage to investigate that relationship. Um, it's a very complex relationship, uh, n- namely the activity of the antennas and climatic o- occurrences. And the reason, as I mentioned earlier, the reason is that the scientific community is in fact more or less kidnapped by the military-industrial complex. Uh, it does not want to voice any any statements which could, of course, have far-reaching implications at the political, geopolitical level. Uh, I should mention that um, one of the most distinguished scientists, Rosalie Bertel, who recently passed away, she brought out this relationship, uh, but in, in a very cautious way. So scientists are mum on the, on the subject matter. Uh, environmentalists do not, um, although they acknowledge uh, the existence of climatic warfare, they have never inserted that into their discussion on global warming or climatic instability. And I should mention that, in, in effect, there was a convention signed between um, between um, various countries, but, but specifically between Russia and China, going back to 1990, uh, 1977, which it's a convention which bans the use of environmental modification techniques uh, and um, recognizes their, their destructive uh, applications. And uh, at the 1992 um, Earth Summit, uh, there was a 
reassertion of that basic protocol of, of 77 um, in, the, in the founding documents of the United Nations Framework for Climate Change, but in, in effect it was not really mentioned. And in all subsequent uh, venues uh, pertaining to climate change, uh, Kyoto, uh, global warming, the issue of environmental modification techniques for military use is never mentioned. Instead, people are focusing on green gas uh, um, emissions and... Um, I'm sorry, I should say that differently. It's greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, uh, let me start that again. The, the environmentalists uh, acknowledge the existence of these um, military technologies, but they are uh, more concerned uh, with CO2 emissions and their impact on global warming. And, uh, and uh, consequently, the whole debate on climate change, in effect... Is, uh, is somewhat complicit of the military agenda. Afghan is in Afghanistan, Vietnamese in Vietnam, Iraq is in Iraqi land, we bombed them all. White phosphorus and napalm too, bunker busters, daisy cutters, cruise missiles, B-52s. We bombed them all for their prosperity, their freedom and democracy. Announcing the Corbett Reports 2009 Video Archive. Over 90 minutes of never-before-seen interviews and classic video reports, including... These major actors, a handful of financial institutions, are picking up uh, the real economy at rock-bottom prices. Very simply speaking, I think uh, there can't be any justifiable wars. Well, and I think this is this is all basically also a big hat tip to the work that Project Censor does. And that is one of those things that, again, is always a real, a, a big effective tool in the info war is that sort of in one link you could send that you could send that out and have someone read that list and just go, oh, my God, I didn't know these things. It's a simple decision to make, but one that we must make quickly before the argument can be spun away and environmentalism can go back to business as usual. And uh, I, I didn't like what I saw from an emotional standpoint and from a, a scientific standpoint, from just the physics of watching the pulverization of these buildings. Well, they, they came out and said, look, the, this report is not to be used for policy. But then they set up the summary for policymakers. The absolute contradiction of that. I've always considered myself to be politically motivated and politically interested, but it wasn't something that I think defined my life in, in the way that it does now. The Corbett Report, 2009 Video Archive. Available now on DVD. Buy your copy today at corbettreport.com.
Well, what I've uncovered is that um, right now, for example, uh, they have what they call geoengineering, which is upper atmospheric modification. And one of the things that's been happening is the U.S. House of Representatives has held three hearings, uh, one in November 5th last year and two this year in February and March, um, to, to have some talking about global geoengineering governance, uh, drawing up plans to put up particles and chemicals or do other atmospheric experiments to reduce the amount of direct sunlight reaching the Earth. And this is ostensibly to cool us down. But the type of chemicals and particles that they're talking about putting in the atmosphere are likely to produce acid rains when they come back down, like sulfur. And they're likely to do other damage to the environment. And when you release the amount of direct sunlight reaching the Earth, you start to reduce photosynthesis. And without photosynthesis, all plant life will lose the energy to grow. Crop production will be reduced. Um, without direct sunlight, you start to have a lack of vitamin D and the, and the associated health effects. And so I began to be concerned that reducing the amount of direct sunlight reaching the Earth might not be what we want to do and that it may not cool us down. And that, that many of the scientists who were recommending this course of action said, well, we don't know what the consequences are, but we would like to do the testing anyway um, so that we can be prepared um, in an emergency or such to put the chemicals up or whatever we need to do to keep us cooler, to combat global warming. And so I took exception to this because I found out through my research that um, uh, the, one of the causes of global warming we could take care of without, we could take care of by reducing our pollutants and some of the impacts of aviation. And we could do it um, very easily and without, um, in other words, having to resort to things that would harm the environment. So your, your research tends to indicate that the persistent jet contrails are along the lines of geoengineering in terms of uh, global warming or preventing global warming. Yes. Um, what I don't think that they're there to prevent global warming. Um, persistent jet contrails are actually causing global warming because the NASA studies and the Stanford studies and some others, uh, and there's quite a number of them, also, that aviation um, uh, causes global warming, it exacerbates it, and uh, it also changes the climate. And it's responsible for 20% of the warming over Alaska and the Arctic, and they know that it's directly aviation produced. And what happens is when jets fly and they leave these contrails that persist, besides um, toxic jet fuel emissions, you have this man-made cloud that is produced. One man-made cloud can last up for up to 20 hours. It can cover 4,000 kilometers with either man-made clouds or white haze of some kind. And what it does when it produces these man-made clouds, it's, it, the combustion process releases water vapor into the atmosphere. Water vapor is greenhouse gas. So therefore, when you see these man-made clouds that change our climate, they're also causing, they're also exacerbating global warming. And one of the things that we could do is to stop the jets from 
um, flying at heights that per, that produce these man-made clouds. So there are things that we can do almost immediately which would uh, start to reduce the problem. The other thing about man-made clouds, according to NASA studies, is that they're a little different than natural clouds in that they hold in and trap more heat. And when they hold in and they trap more heat, they're more humid, you get this heat trap that traps all of the other pollutants, greenhouse gases and other pollutants. So you actually keep the heat from escaping, both during the night and the day. And in trapping the heat, you warm the earth up. And you concentrate these other pollutants as well. So part of the thing about geoengineering is that we already have this geoengineering experiment. And whenever you see these jets producing the man-made clouds, we're already geoengineering the atmosphere. And so one of the things we should be doing, instead of adding more particles and chemicals to that toxic mix that we already have, we should be finding ways to have the jets run cleaner. We should have them fly at heights where they don't leave trails that persist. Um, and we should start to um, move in that direction very quickly. All right. So, so what can you tell us about the composition of these trails from your research? Um, persistent jet contrails from my research are composed of highly toxic jet fuel emissions, which cause agricultural damage, human health problems like asthma. The EPA reports on subsonic uh, jet fuel emissions is quite clear that uh, there's carcinogens in them, that uh, jet fuel is probably, I would judge from their reports, much more toxic than automobile exhaust and that they release soot and other particles. So the plume, even though it looks light, is loaded with jet fuel emissions that are highly polluting. The second thing is that when you see that trail, the combustion process of a jet engine releases water vapor. And so what happens is you get this uh, greenhouse gas that mixes in with this, and you can have some ice crystals in it or not, depending. But what happens is that this is a highly toxic mix, and its impact on agriculture, human health, um, all these things is quite high. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and it is the 27th of July here in Japan. Uh, joining me on the line today is filmmaker Michael J. Murphy and legendary researcher and author G. Edward Griffin, who are currently combining forces to create a new documentary about the ongoing stratospheric aerosol geoengineering campaign, commonly known as chemtrailing. And that documentary is called What in the World Are They Spraying? And the trailer is widely available online. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thanks for inviting well, us, James. Yeah, thanks, James. An honor to uh, to be on your program to talk about this important issue. Well, it is definitely an honor to have you here because this is an extremely important issue. So, Michael Murphy, let's start with you. Uh, why don't you tell us about how you came to start working on this project with Mr. Griffin and what prompted you to take up this subject in particular? Well, it, it was real interesting because, uh, like most people, the first person that told me about the aerosol spraying, I really thought that they were completely crazy. 
but a couple months later, somebody had actually pointed it out and showed me a, a plane spraying aerosols into the sky. So uh, naturally, I began to research this on the internet and developed uh, a curiosity. But what really had uh, propelled me into becoming more and more interested was back in February where there was a geoengineering conference in San Diego, um, which I hadn't had attended, and I wanted to learn more about these programs. And for three days, geoengineers proposed their programs of stratospheric aerosol geoengineering, uh, which essentially were programs to spray 10 to 20 million tons of aluminum and barium into the upper atmosphere for what they said was the stated goal of cooling the planet, um, which is very shocking because during that meeting, I had learned actually, A, how damaging uh, both aluminum and barium, and we can talk a little more about that uh, further into the program, uh, about the toxicity, both not only to human health, but also to ecosystems. I also met several people who have been doing rain, soil, and water tests, which revealed just that, massive amounts of aluminum and barium um, all around the world. Of course, uh, when I was there, I had asked the geoengineers uh, about the current deployment of these programs, and they emphatically denied it. However, during that time, I met many people who uh, told me that they had a mountain of evidence that not only suggests that these programs are ongoing, but also uh, destroying ecosystems and human health literally around the globe. So I developed just a great concern um, because of what I had learned there, and uh, I had written some articles and began to, uh, to film, and that's when we, uh, we hooked up with Mr. Griffin. Um, we actually went over to his house to, uh, to interview him on a different subject, and I said, you know, I said, Ed, can, can I talk to you about an issue commonly called chemtrails? And uh, he said, you know what, I'm interested in that subject. So we started talking, and I kind of shared with him uh, what we had found, um, which was very shocking. And he said, you know, uh, this is not good. He said, I'd like to get involved uh, with this project if I could, and that's, that's pretty much how we came together. So what prompted you to go to Mr. Griffin in the first place? Well, it, it was not on the issue of geoengineering. Um, we were uh, just doing some interviews um, for a different project. So we uh, obviously had seen a lot of his work, not only on, on many of the different documentaries, but also uh, his deep intellectual work on, on books uh, such as uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island. So it was an honor to, uh, to come out and, and to interview him about some of those issues. So it was really... Um, you know, just the respect that we had for uh, both he and his work that prompted us to to go out there. Well, I can certainly understand that. Obviously, J. Edward Griffin brings a lot of respect with him from uh, a lot of people who do know his other work on, on things like the Federal Reserve. So, so Mr. Griffin, uh, what really was your interest in, in the in the chemtrailing issue, and how long have you been exploring this? Well, I guess... Uh, the honest answer to that is that um, my interest began probably around 10 years ago when I started to observe it in the sky. I thought, what in the world are they spraying? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was amazing to me from the very get-go how many people could look up in the sky 
and either not see the spraying at all, not notice it, and it was so obvious, or if they did see it, they were perfectly content to accept the explanation that it oh, was just normal jet trails, you know, vapor trails. And to me, it seems so absurd that this uh, that anybody could believe that when you compared real jet trails, which I've been watching all my life. You know, they're little tiny vapor things that travel along behind the aircraft, don't last probably more than maybe half a mile behind the aircraft, and then they, they are absorbed back into the atmosphere. Um, and then you compare that with these, these vaporous trails that spread all over the, the sky, and, and within an hour or two, they've, they've milked up the sky. They can hardly see the sun. But what do you mean? How can you believe that that is just a plain jet trail? So I became kind of curious not only about the jet trails, but I became curious about the way to which in which people can be convinced of something that is so obviously not true, simply because they heard it on the television or they hear it from some authority. And so I was in a state of somewhat, um, I guess you'd say, anger about that and great disappointment in the human race that so many people could swallow this line. And and then I, I thought that you know, surely somebody will do a great expose on this, somebody better qualified than I, I was tempted at one time. I thought, no, there are plenty of engineers and pilots and, and scientists who should tackle this. Well, the years went by, and there really wasn't anything of, you know, definitive on this study. So when Mike and Paul showed up at my house that day, and they were already determined to do something with it, and they, they apparently had the, uh, the skills to do it, I thought, well, isn't this an opportunity to uh, jump on board and see if I can help? So it was a thing that grew over many years, James. Right. Well, that's uh, that's very interesting because I I have almost the exact same reaction to the way that people are able to convince themselves that what they're seeing is completely normal and usual. And uh, I remember at one point trying to point out to someone that what we were seeing was not cloud and that we had just watched the sky be painted over, but uh, they were... We're just unable to see that, and I think that is one of those frustrating things that uh, that really makes you question people's ability to to understand something of this uh, size and magnitude. So that's why I think this documentary is so hotly anticipated, and everyone is looking forward to it. And just on that note, I understand that uh, we can get some information about this from truthmediaproductions.com, but is there a website for this documentary specifically? Well, uh, there isn't one really that's up and functioning yet. There will be, of course, uh, as soon as the production is available. But anyone who wants to uh, learn as much as uh, we already have about it and wants to get online and be notified when the video is finally released, they can come to our Reality Zone website. That's pretty easy to remember. It's realityzone.com. And uh, the minute you get there, one of the big... Um, advertisements, one of the big panels that will be right there on screen is uh, a notification about uh, becoming an angel is how we say it. We were looking initially and still are looking for uh, people to help us uh, finance this project and we've been very, very happy with the positive response we've received. If it hadn't been for people from all over the world helping us out financially, there's no way that we could have uh, you know, put this production together as quickly as we have been. But uh, other than that, people can come online, see what we have already published about it, and, and be um, ready to receive a notice when the DVD is finally released. So that's realityzone.com. 
I certainly hope people will check that out and think about becoming an angel investor in this because it is so important that people do support the, the documentary filmmakers who are not being funded by major corporations. So um, on that note, Michael Murphy, I understand you've been working on this for quite some time. Uh, how much footage do you have and wh- how many interviews have you conducted? Oh, my God. We literally have hundreds of hours of footage we've conducted. I would say roughly about 60 different interviews, and this uh, comes from just a wide range of professionals, uh, physicians, uh, scientists, people who are really qualified to talk about what we're finding. Um, What we're finding, can can I go into that? Absolutely, please do. Yeah, it it was interesting because, again, I'm going to go back to geoengineers models, which we're proposing dumping 10 to 20 million tons of aluminum and barium into the atmosphere people are finding elevated levels and alarming levels around the world. Um, and I'll give you an example of the snow on Mount Shasta. Mount Shasta is removed far from any industry. As a baseline, it should have about seven parts per billion of aluminum. Um, a test was done by Francis Mangles, a retired 35-year uh, uh, USDA biologist, and he had sent the test into a government lab, and it revealed test results in drinking water allowables, before I tell you the, the numbers, uh, will only allow for 50 parts per billion. Government action, according to Francis, is required at 1,000 parts per billion. The test that was taken on Mount Shasta revealed 61,100 parts per billion of aluminum. That is extremely high. Um, and I want to say that because I want to go into this. Aluminum is very toxic, both to human health and, God, for the past seven years, we've seen an incredible increase in aluminum-related illness. It's going through the roof, such as Alzheimer's and many different neurological disorders. Barium, uh, which is being found in very high content, lowers our immune system, uh, creates high blood pressure and a bunch of other illness. And the, the real thing that we had initially started finding was in Northern California as well as around the world, uh, they're starting to see a die-off in the forest. Uh, and insects are dying, uh, amphibians are dying. So when we went up to Northern California, that was one of the parts, one of the many different locations that uh, we went to in filming this um, and had spoken to many professionals, they had started testing. And what they found, they found that the pH of their soil was at a minimum 10 times the normal pH. So they began asking questions, um, why is the pH changing? Um, And what they found was massive amounts of free-form aluminum. Free-form aluminum, when when it uh, falls into soil, will increase the pH. Now, in, in most soils, it will increase the pH. A lot of plant life and a lot of forests require an acidic soil to grow. So... Uh, they believe, without a shadow of a doubt, because this is what they're finding in the rain, uh, and there is a correlation between when trails are present and when they're not. When they're not, these levels uh, seem to come down a little bit, that this is the cause of the mass die-off that they're seeing. Um, and, and with that being said, uh, we can talk a little more, perhaps later, about uh, the aluminum-resistant seed that's uh, uh, the patent is owned by the USDA. Um, and that's very scary in itself. 
In fact, that was exactly what I was going to bring up with you. Of course, we saw Monsanto very recently talking about adding uh, aluminum resistance genes to certain subsistence crops. And it is extremely interesting that that comes along just as aluminum levels are exploding in soils. Yes, yeah, it, it really one could get pretty suspicious about that, but of course that's not conclusive. I think um, the research that Michael and Paul have done uh, shows that there are parts of the world where uh, the soil is naturally rich in aluminum and it's considered to be low-yield or low-productive soil. And so therefore, Monsanto and other seed producers can logically claim, well, they're just developing the uh, you know, aluminum-resistant crops for those parts of the world. But, uh, you know, those of us who have been watching Monsanto for these years uh, have a very highly raised eyebrow over the whole thing. Well, yeah, absolutely, and for good reason. But, of course, we should give benefit of the doubt where there is uh, some to be given because we want to build the strongest case possible. So let's talk about some of the other uh, things that you've uncovered. Obviously, you have talked to a lot of people who are skeptical that there is stratospheric aerosol geoengineering happening right now. So what kinds of points do they raise, and what information have you been able to surface that contradicts that? <laughs> well, I, I mean, there's literally a mountain of evidence uh, coming up around the world that these programs, A, are real, and B, a threat to, uh, to human health and uh, ecology. Now, we've spoken to a lot of people who uh, want to always go back to, to uh, NASA science about contrails, um, and they talk about how contrails can change depending on, on the, uh, the humidity and, and the level and these different weather conditions, which, you know, it might be true, but they never address uh, the, the fact about aerosol spraying. Um, they always come back to contrails. And I always tell them this. I believe in contrails. I've believed in contrails my entire life. You know, I don't refute that contrails are real. However, what we are seeing and what we're finding, I mean, it's really hard to cover up uh, the mass contamination that's been found around the world, and they cannot address that issue. And I always tell them, you know, once you tell me where the massive amounts of aluminum and barium are coming from, if you can identify that, then <laughs> I will stop looking into this. But nobody has been able to do that. We have also just gotten back from a trip from Washington, D.C., and I uh, had several interviews with uh, congressmen, um, and uh, people in Congress, and then uh, a few senators as well, and none of them uh, were willing to uh, really address the issue of current deployment of these programs. So, you know, it appears that when you start bringing facts to this issue, which we certainly are, and we believe that through our investigation, we're bringing not only a mountain of evidence, but proof that these programs are real, uh, nobody has been able to, to refute us <laughs> publicly. The, the, some, now, we have had uh, critics in, in many different uh, websites who, who appear to uh, be pro-contrail and, and criticize a lot of our work. Um, Ed and I have made efforts to contact these people to get them to interview with us, and all of them uh, up to date have uh, wished to remain anonymous. So uh, that draws a lot of skepticism uh, about their credibility as well. Well, it's uh, very hard to debate uh, someone who wants to remain anonymous, isn't it? So it is interesting that they would 
choose to, to go that route. But, uh, well, that is very interesting. So so let's move out a little bit and talk a little bit about a, an issue that I think is, in one sense, it's just semantics, but in another sense, it seems to be a, a, a sort of an underlying point of this debate that a lot of people shy away from the term chemtrails. And we see all sorts of different proposed uh, names for this, including stratospheric aerosol geoengineering. To what extent do you think that that's merely a semantic debate? And what to what extent does that actually go to the root of uh, defining what what it is we're facing? Well, I'll, I'll address that one. I think it's uh, primarily semantic because it's really basically the same thing. Um, it, it's just that uh, I think what they're trying to do, James, is, is uh, hang sort of a, um, a negative aura to the word chemtrails to make it sound as though anybody who even uses that word is uh, a little bit wacko. Uh, I think they're trying to do that. They're not succeeding, but I think they'd like very much to do that. Uh, I don't really care what you call it. <laughs> it. The fact is that you can look up in the sky and you can take the measurements of what's falling out of the sky, and you can see that those are chemtrails. So, yeah, I think it's a All right, friends, welcome back. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Once again, this is your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. I want to thank you all for tuning in for tonight's broadcast. Once again, we've been listening to an array of interviews on the subject of weather manipulation, chemtrailing, geoengineering, all of those uh, very important subjects. And there's a lot more to be said on this, so we will continue to cover it in the future. And I do have a GRTV report on this very subject that I hope to be coming out with next week. So keep your eye on my YouTube channel for that. Speaking of YouTube, welcome to uh, the broadcast to all the YouTube lemmings out there who have never ventured off of YouTube to see what else it is that I'm doing. For those people in YouTube land expressing bewilderment at all of these videos coming out all of a sudden as if I've suddenly created 50 hours of videos in the last two days, uh, well, welcome to the last several months here at CorbettReport.com. And if you ever get off of YouTube and check the website, you'll notice that we've been doing these uh, these videos for quite a few months now. So welcome to the broadcast. I'm glad you could finally join us there in YouTube, and I hope you will get off of YouTube and boycott the Google system that is enslaving you. That's just a little note for all those YouTube people out there. And on the other note, of course, once again, I would just like to thank all of you out there for your support in all the various ways that it comes in, including all the tips and links and show notes and all of the things that you send in via the email uh, contact form at CorbettReport.com slash contact. It is appreciated, and once again, I do make my best possible effort to go through all the information that comes in, but I physically, humanly, there are not enough hours in the day to look at all the documentaries and things that people send in, so I'm doing the best I can. I hope you'll bear with me if I'm uh, very slow in responding, and uh, sometimes I just cannot get to all of it. And on that note, of course, uh, the best way to support this work that I'm doing and this website and all of the information presented herein is simply to spread the word about this, pass the word on, work it into conversations with others, pass DVDs out to complete strangers on the street, however it is that you want to get the word out. Just make sure that you do start inserting this into your everyday life because we have to start taking this offline 